Okay, good morning, everybody. You should have two handouts, two sheets. You pull those out. If you didn't get a copy of those handouts, put your hand up over here. Just a little, a couple hands up in the back and up front. Little review from last night. We started out First Chronicles chapter twelve thirty two. Uh, the verse uh, that your leadership picked out as kind of a theme verse. The men of Issachar understood their times and knew what to do. Uh, we looked last night and said we need to understand our world, our Decapolis, uh, where we live, so that we'll know what to do. Uh, I hope you got to think about that a little bit in your small group. Maybe did some meditating on that uh, as you pillowed your head. Maybe at least for ten seconds there but what your world looks like. Maybe it looks like my world did on Wednesday where people were booing Jesus and there's some people just apathetic or even antagonistic today to the name of Jesus. I find in in my world, maybe it's many of your worlds, that most people aren't like that. Uh, There's at least a religious veneer. Uh, Sometimes people get inoculated with this much of Jesus and, and then they don't experience the real deal. And in Louisiana... In the political realm, you wouldn't get into office even if you're the dog catcher unless you were a member of a church. It just would not happen in the state of Louisiana. So everybody's got, you know, a little bit of something. But as I interact with leaders, I find probably at the most 10% are actually self-feeding in the Word of God. And so I need to understand there's, you know, a religious framework and I need to meet people where they're at. Uh, For my world, it's kind of like the two uh, U.S. senators who were together in the Senate dining room. And uh, the Republican senator was kind of on his high horse, and he was kind of saying to the Democratic senator, you know, the Republicans are really the God party. You know, we've got kind of a corner on that world. That's who we are, and you Democrats have kind of lost that. And the Democratic senator, uh, he came right back and said, well, I don't think that's true as well. I think we're committed to God just as much as you are. And the Republican said, I'll bet you $100 that you're not. $100, I can prove that. And the Democrats say, well, how are you going to do that? Because I'll bet you the $100. And he says, it's easy. Bet you $100 you don't even know the Lord's Prayer. And the Democrat, he he shook his hand and said, it's a bet. And the Republican said, okay, uh, tell me, what's the Lord's Prayer? And the Democrat, very sincerely bowed his head and he said, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. To which the Republican senator pulled out his wallet, pulled out the $100 and said, I had no idea you knew the Lord's Prayer. Here's your 100 bucks. You know, in my world, who needs Jesus? It's Republicans, it's Democrats, it's everybody needs Jesus. Everybody. But uh, just another thought on our world. Maybe this will be encouragement to you and also challenging to us as we think about our culture, our world, and to know what to do. Uh, Guys, what's the fastest growing, as people call it, world religion or faith today in the world? Not in our country, but in the world. Islam. Any other guesses? Atheistic. None. No. Mormon. No, by far. By far, it's people who are followers of Jesus. By far. You never pick that up in an American newspaper, ever. 
In India, some missions people say as many as 40,000 people a day are trusting Jesus. I didn't make a mistake there, a day. Uh, Some people say potentially 7% or maybe a little more of India are now following after Jesus. In China, it's 30,000 a day. 30,000 a day, missions people say. There's little churches breaking out at bus stop, you know, overhangs in apartment buildings. One of my professors, I was just with him two months ago at Dallas Seminary. He's been hired by the Communist Party of China to be their consultant. Because this Jesus movement that's going on, I mean, it's going on big time. They have a hard time putting their head around it. They've hired the professor at Dallas Seminary to be their consultant to understand what the Jesus movement is all about. These are incredible times. In Africa, it's 20,000 a day trusting Christ. To think in 1900, some mission organizations were saying, should we move to another part of the world because this just isn't working in Africa and is it worth our investment? And today significant, significant things are happening in Africa for Jesus. In uh, South America, it's 10,000 a day. And even in the Arab world, some missions people say more people in the Arab world have come to be followers of Jesus in the last 15 years than in the prior 1,500 years combined. And there is a disillusionment in many homes from radicalism so that people in that part of the world are starting to say, Could there be something else? Could there be something more? And in our world today, some of the great revivals of history are going on in our world today. And we need to know that and rejoice in that, that you cannot stop the kingdom of God. And you cannot stop the movement of Jesus, no matter how hard you try. I got a buddy I was just with at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington two, three weeks ago. And he, uh, he invited a Saudi Arabian oil baron, Muslim, to the prayer breakfast. And uh, this guy helps put, up, put on the breakfast, and so he could only wave to him. He gets back home, and uh, this was last year's prayer breakfast, and he says, hey, by the way, what would you think of the prayer breakfast? And the Saudi Arabian oil baron says, I loved it. I'd never been to anything like that in all my life. He said, well, what would you like best? And he pulled right out of his pocket. He said, this is what I love best. It was a tiny little black book with the word Jesus on the cover. And he said, I sat at the breakfast with a congressman from Alabama, and he gave me this little book. I've been reading it one hour a day, every day since I got home. I I love the first section. It's written by a guy named Matt. He said that, Matt. I love that, that kind of message that comes early on in that book by Matt. And he says, I'm so impressed with it, I called up that representative in Washington and I asked him if I could could take his book and if I could translate it from English to Arabic. He thought that the congressman wrote this little book. It was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, of course, the congressman said, do whatever you want with it. He he produced 10,000 copies and he was passing it out to every friend he possibly could. That's the kind of thing that God's doing. And my heart is that that man's eyes might be open, that he might say, yeah, Jesus is a man. Yeah, Jesus is a prophet. But just like the lady in John 4 at the well, a man to a prophet to realizing he was 
all more than that. He was actually God. God is at work. Now, what's the fastest growing uh, religious affiliation in America? Not the world now, but in, in America. You know, our world. Fastest growing. Agnostic. Who else got a guess? What is that? E free. Woohoo! Islam, Mormonism, fastest growing religious affiliation in America by far. Nothing else close. None. Not N U N, the nuns, N O N E. What's your religious affiliation? None. 8% in the early 80s went up to 16% in the early 2000s. It's, uh, it's now 24% two years ago, 24%. And among millennials, it's 40%. What's your religious affiliation? None. Good news is 85% of the nuns aren't atheists. They're open to spirituality. They're down on church. But they're open to something being there more. And that's where they need someone to enter their world. That's, that's where we live. I don't know what your decapolis is. Maybe it's people antagonistic. Maybe it's a prodigal child. Uh, maybe it's a next-door neighbor that's indifferent. Maybe it's a bunch of people that are religious. But it's good to understand the world in which we live, isn't it? It's important. All right, let's jump in today in your handout. And I hope this will lay a foundation for uh, us being people who can be of influence to reach out in this world. And I believe it all starts here with uh, the value of one. The value of one. Winning the world begins with one. And you might want to open up there to Luke chapter 15 to just get a sense of this. This is the truth that unless, I believe that unless we have a heart for the people of this world, and realize next-door neighbors and co-workers and others matter to God, uh, we're, we're never going to share, and, and we're not going to be much of an influ- influence. It, it starts with just this attitude of a big heart toward those around us. Luke chapter 15 uh, starts out, and uh, in verse 1, now it says, Uh, How many of the tax collectors and sinners were there coming to Jesus? All. You know, not all in the world, but probably all in that region. They were coming. And I marvel that the very embodiment of holiness was one who had such rapport with people that were far from God. But they all were just drawn like a magnet to this Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. This man receives sinners and eats with them. The truth was that the religious clergymen of the day, they didn't give a rip about lost people. I mean, they did not give a rip about them. And Jesus could not stand it, and so he quickly rattles off three stories. And you're probably familiar with the stories here, the 99 and the 1, the woman who lost a a coin, a poor woman who lost a coin, and then the story of the prodigal. And in each story, you know, something of value was lost, That lostness warranted a search, and when something was found, I mean, there was joy and celebration. Jesus just wanted to burn into people's minds and hearts that all people matter to God. And he tops it off with this story, uh, the story about a a lost son. And uh, we won't read it, uh, because I think most of you know it. 
But, you know, the man had a son, and the son, he, he just wanted to get away from the father. He wanted to go to a distant land, and he asked for his inheritance, which in the Middle East, that was unheard of. It would be like saying, drop dead dad. It'd be like giving the dad the middle finger. It's like saying, I want you either to be dead or act like you're dead. I want what's mine. And that was unheard of, but in this story, the father gives that inheritance to the kid, runs off to a distant land, you know, it's great for a little while, but he ends up blowing it all. And uh, there's a famine there, and he ends up in a pig pen. He ends up absolutely emaciated. And he's thinking, he's thinking, what am I going to do? And can I possibly go home? And uh, there was something in that day that you might not know just historically going on, but there was something called kazaza in that day. And kazaza was a word that means you are cut off, you are not welcome. And in Jewish society, if a young man lost his inheritance to Gentiles, there would be a shaming exercise that would take place in little towns everywhere where that young man who had lost his inheritance to the Gentiles would be brought before the people of the town and he would be shamed and he would be cut off. Uh, Women, men, the people, his next-door neighbors, the people who would be his aunts and uncles, the people who run the little stores, they would all come with a pot filled with uh, nuts or other things, burn nuts, And they would bring it before the young man, and they would take their pots, and that word kazaza means cut off, and they would take the pot and they would throw it down in front of the young man, neighbor after neighbor after neighbor, and they would say with a scowl on their face, kazaza, you are cut off, you are not welcome, you have shamed your family. You have shamed your neighbors. You are not part of us anymore. Leave. We never want to see you ever again. Kazaza. That young man, why did he get emaciated and it take him so long to go home? I think he could have pictured justice, biblical justice, getting what you deserve. He could have pictured Kazaza. He could have just seen himself in front of all the people he knew and loved coming up to him and throwing a pot down in front of his face and saying, get out of here, kid. I think he could have pictured mercy. Mercy's getting less than you deserve, right? I think he could have pictured, because this was in his little spiel he came up with. Yeah, I could go home. I'm not worried that he'd be in my father's house, but maybe, just maybe, maybe I could be a bunk hand out in the servants' quarters. Maybe I'd have a little future there and get a little mercy. I think he could have maybe pictured that. I don't think in a million years he ever, ever contemplated grace. Where you get what you don't deserve. But he goes home and he's got his little spiel. And you know the father's heart. The father is the kind of father who scanned the horizon every day. The father's the father who kept the porch light on every night. Back door open, a plate set at the dinner table, yearning for that boy to come home. And the father, one day, when he looks out in the distance, he sees a person on the horizon. And when he saw it, 
He just saw it looked like his son's walk. And as he looked a little bit closer, if you can just picture the emotion of that situation, where the father sees it's the son. And anyone remember what the father did? He ran. The dad, all he could do was run. And no, no, noble men in the first century did not run. People ran to them. And if you hitched up your robe to run like you would have needed to, it's like running in your underwear. All of that shame just came to the father because the father took off like Michael Jordan on a fast break. And his sandals were flapping and his hair was waving. And I mean, he was extending the arms and the robe was up because all he wanted to do was get to his boy before the townspeople got to his boy because he didn't want Kazaza to happen to him. He didn't want this human being whom he loved to live in shame. He wanted the boy to come home to the father's home and not be a slave in the bunkhouse. He wanted him to be a cherished, devoted, most loved son. And so he ran. What did he do when he got to the kid? Yeah, I mean, just embraced him, kissed him. You know, put him in a place with, call him for a banquet. And he wanted all the townspeople to know, I'm a father of a different kind. I don't want Kazaza. And my boy who was lost is now found. The one who's dead is now alive. And the boy came home. I tell you, Jesus told that story because he did it in the context of a whole lot of religious people look at prodigals and look at lost people and they just look down upon them. And like the Pharisees, it's very easy not to give a rip. And if we don't check our hearts, we drift into Pharisee mode very quickly. Isn't that what happened? Uh, Isn't that what happened to James and John one time where they said when rebuffed a little bit by the Samaritans, hey Jesus, should we call fire down from heaven to consume them? And they thought they were going to get an attaboy from Jesus. Jesus rebuked them, didn't he? You know, do you remember John chapter 4 when the disciples, they get to the well and there's this woman there, lonely and left out. They took one look at her and thought, oh, her become a Christ follower? You've got to be kidding. Not a chance. I cannot even stand being in her presence. Let's go into town and get some lunch. Jesus said, I'm going to stay here. And when they got back, he said, I've just had a seven-course meal. Because that woman mattered to Jesus. I tell you, this whole weekend, you know, how to share with others, how to be an influence. If we don't grow in this area of knowing the value of one and that people matter to God, the other stuff is going to be superfluous. It just it isn't going to matter. There won't be a chance. It's got to start here with knowing that people matter to God, so they have to matter to us. I can remember uh, early on in my ministry, I was preaching on Jonah. And if you know the story of Jonah, Jonah was one who God wanted him to go reach those Ninevites, and Jonah went in the opposite direction. And so I've got my message down. I'm preaching Sunday morning on this care for, you know, people in Nineveh, how we got to reach out, don't be a Jonah. 
And at the end of the week, uh, I had uh, three days where we had a little pop-up trailer, wanted to get away from it all, had my son there, we were with another family, they had two boys, and so it was just going to be a relaxing, quiet time, and I go and preach on Sunday. And uh, it was great for the first day until uh, about 10 o'clock at night, and I don't know if you've ever heard of Rolling Thunder, but, uh, you know, motorcycle folks from all over the nation, a lot of Vietnam vets and others come in for a real... Uh, big day in Washington, D.C., and where do those guys with the motorcycles sleep? At the campground. And, and the campground filled up, and it was just rum, 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 uh, all from 10 to midnight. And all I could do was say, who are these people? What is going on? Why doesn't the people of the camp come and arrest these people? I mean, I was thinking every bad thought in the book. How did they pick this weekend? And this just went on all through the next day as they were loud. And, uh, you know, I'm just like, how did we pick the campground that they're all in? And, and this is just all day long. All day long. Uh, then the day came when they were they're off uh, early for Rolling Thunder. I didn't know it, but the tradition is before you go down to D.C., you know, these tens of thousands of guys, before you go down to D.C., you've got to get the blessing of the bikes. You've got to be prayed for. And uh, what happened in this campground, God designed it this way, was that the pastor or priest or chaplain or whoever it was who was going to pray for them never showed up. And so they couldn't leave until they got a pastor to pray the blessing of the bikes. And somehow they find out that there's a pastor in the campground. Two guys come into my campground and say, you know, we've got this real problem. We've got to have the blessing of the bikes. We're here, we hear you're a pastor. And, uh, you know, could you do this? Well, what am I going to say? You know, if I pray for them, maybe they'll get out of here. <laughs> so I don't know how this whole thing works. I'm thinking it's just, you know, get them together, say a little prayer, go off, and goodbye. I get there in the field, and there's 100 guys there. 100 guys. They've got to be prayed for one by one. They, uh, they take off their hats. You know, sometimes they take off, you know, their other things that they've got on their head. They bow their heads. They start sharing with me the hurts and needs of their lives. They want that prayer. And one by one, just, you know, it took a lot of time. One by one by one, I prayed for them. And it was one of the great privileges of my life. And you know what Jesus is saying to me? You got a whole bunch of Jonah in you. What have you been doing? You're preaching on Jonah this week that people care, are cared for by God and they should be cared for by you. Michael, you got a whole lot of growing up to do. Michael, you got to be careful when you just say things about other people and you have attitudes toward other human beings that are just too quick and too much about you. Michael, you need to grow up, and you need to get a different heart. That whole weekend was designed for me, and I preached on Sunday a whole lot different than it would have been if God wouldn't have, in a little way, opened my eyes and said, look at your own heart and take a step. Take a step. That's this first area where winning the world begins with one. Would you be a person who prays, God, help me to see this world a whole lot more like you see it and help me to look at human beings as actually human beings and not just categories and not just people to write off. 
Would you pray that way? Would you have a heart for that? If Jesus says to take a little 10% redirection in this area, with this person, begin to think a little bit different. Would you honor that? Here's the next thing. Uh, Two principles. Uh, Evangelism is a process, and then God is responsible for the results. These things have just been huge in my life. I never knew this when I went to seminary. Did not have a clue. But if you go to John 4, 35 to 38, and you can find this in other places, Scripture often used the harvest motif to talk about these things. And it was what many people could understand, and I think we can pick it up as well. When it comes to the harvest, there's a lot of things involved there. You got to plant, and you got to water, and you got to, you know, tend to the weeds, and you got to give it some time and patience, and there's sunlight, and then you got to water some more. And there's all these things, but it doesn't happen instantly, and it's a process. It's a process. I never knew that, I just didn't. Maybe you've seen the chart like at the bottom of your page where, you know, some people are at minus 10, some people are at minus 8. You know, some people are far from God. You know, some people get closer and they start to take an interest and they're asking questions and they want to know more and they're drawn near and maybe they come to a church. And then there's that point where, you know, there can be that work of God where someone passes from darkness to light. But the part we play is a process a process. I never knew that for a long time. You know, it takes a lot of people. Someone prays for a person, and somebody loves on somebody, and someone invites someone out to lunch, you know, and someone provides, you know, some little booklet that somebody can take an interest, and someone along the line, you know, invites somebody to church. When we understand evangelism is a process, all of us can get involved in sowing seeds, right? We can get involved in reaching out loving. We can pray for people. All of that is part of the work and a critical part of the work. I've got a guy, Mike Casino. Stephen, maybe you know him. Works at, he owns Casino's Pizza. This guy never knew it was a process, and each part of sewing is critical. When he got his eyes open to this, he says, I thought I was a total failure. When people didn't trust Christ, I thought I was a mess. I shouldn't even be doing this. When he learned evangelism was a process, he says, I must do this 50 times a week. I sow a seed here. I love a person here. I'm involved in the work of God now every week because he realized he was part of that chain where God then often does a saving work in somebody. I find... Here's what the statistics say in America. When a person comes to Christ, there have been 30 people on average involved in someone's life in a way where they've sown into that person's life before someone actually comes to faith. Here's what normally happens in our American settings and in our hearts. 30 people were involved. One person leads them to faith. The one person that leads them to faith thinks, wow, I'm a big success. Listen to what I did. And the 30 people think of themselves as failures. That's almost always what happens. Not if you understand the concept of the harvest. And if you were the person on the front end praying for that person, the godly grandmother who cared for a grandson for a bunch of years, if you were the person that invited somebody to church, you were just as much a part of what God did than the person who led them to Christ. 
And here in the room today, maybe you've had that lie in your mind where I thought, oh, if I don't lead someone to Christ, you know, like my pastor says he does, I'm a failure. Whereas you might be the critical person that's just walked with somebody for time, years maybe, cared for somebody. You were the one that invested. And the person reaping, they just got the blessing of seeing what God did. You might need to receive that like Mike Casino did and just say, I got a whole other perspective. I can be sowing into people's lives every week. Here's the other thing. God's responsible for the results. Here's another thing where we get caught up in this. Sometimes we start thinking I'm responsible for the results. And if there's not this magical story at the end of, you know, my efforts, uh, again, I'm a failure. If that's what you've been living in the midst of, I pray you get freed up from that today. Because you can't save anybody. And I can't save anybody. It says over in 1 Corinthians 3 that, you know, Apollos and Paul, one watered, you know, another planted. But who gives the increase? Who is it? Only God. We could never save anybody. Only God can. It's a work of God. And so we need to sow, care, love, pray, reach out at times, be patient with people, go the extra mile, practice perseverance. But we need to leave that other thing in the hands of God. Amen? Amen. Uh, here's, here's the next thing. There's uh, often three barriers that you deal with. In, in this whole process. And uh, I'll just lay them out at the front. There's the emotional barrier first. The emotional barrier. Uh, this is where I don't know if you experience this as you reach out to people, but I find an awful lot of people have the barrier of an emotional barrier where in some way, real or perceived, they've had a bad experience with religion, bad experience with church, bad experience with someone who calls themselves a Christian. There's just these emotional barriers, and they'll just use these as excuses, and they're quite significant often in people's lives. Uh, the, the second one's an intellectual barrier, an intellectual barrier. And this is just people have good questions, good questions, uh, all kinds of questions. And, and then the third one, just to lay it out here so you see the framework, is a volitional barrier. A volitional barrier. And that's the issue of the will, where God doesn't have any grandchildren, right? He only has children. Every individual needs to choose if they're going to push Jesus away or whether they're going to say, I need you. The volitional barrier. Well, how do you handle these uh, three barriers? Well, when it comes to the emotional barrier, people who've had these bad experiences, perceived or real, uh, our, uh, the answer is people need another human being to enter their lives to relationally walk with them, uh, to be a different kind of person, uh, to love them, to care for them. That's the way you overcome these emotional barriers. And this often is that you develop relationships based upon common ground, if you put that in the blanks. Common ground. And uh, maybe this is new to some of you, but uh, maybe it's a review to others, but common ground. If over here is, uh, you know, the person who doesn't know Christ, and here's 
the believer or you. Uh, are there things over here that someone who doesn't have that personal relationship with Christ would like to do or loves to do that a believer wouldn't do? Is there, is there some areas of life that's just they do these things and a believer wouldn't do those things? Yeah, yeah what are some of those things? Okay, drink a lot. Yeah, party hardy. It's okay to enter into fun, but sometimes it just can be over the line. What else? Pornography, strip clubs, you know. What else? Yeah, absolutely. whole bunch of things that people over here might be just, you know, this kind of norm. You know, I do these things, but someone over here that's a believer, they wouldn't, you know, we trust. They wouldn't want to do those things. Are there some things that believers do that, you know, maybe people over here that don't know the Lord, they probably aren't going to be too interested in? Yeah? What would be some of those things? Men's retreats? Men's retreats? <laughs> Prayer ministry? Bible study? Church? Yeah, go to church. Can be all sorts of things over here. Okay, common ground? This area in here, is there a whole bunch of things that those who know Christ love to do, but those who don't know Christ, they equally love to do where there's common ground? Is there? Is there an overlap? What would some of those things be? All right, sporting events. Yeah. Who said food? Man, do people who don't know Christ love food? People who know Christ love food? Absolutely. What a common ground. What are some other things? Families. Families. I had a friend. He, uh, one of my best friends, he came to faith in Christ. And, uh, you know, everything changed for him. And he kind of withdrew from, you know, the relationships and world that he was in. So he was very isolated. And just didn't want to deal with, you know, this world and these folks over here. And one day there was something going on in his community, and so all the neighbors went, and we met together, and uh, most of his neighbors didn't know Christ. And here was his observation of the night. You know all my neighbors, all those people that don't know the Lord, they really, really, really love their kids. (coughs) For some reason he didn't realize that. And his eyes were open. Look at the common ground we have together over our treasured children. There's all kinds of areas of common ground. And where do you start this reaching out to people in your spheres? I'd start and focus right here on your common ground. You don't have to add five or ten hours a week to go out and reach out here or here or here. Usually it works best when you just realize, here's the way God's wired me up. Here's what I'm interested in. And here's some other folks that are right there in my world. We both love this kind of stuff. And in building that relationship, often God allows for a sharing of life, a sharing of thoughts, a sharing of seeds in a natural way where something isn't just intruded into someone's life or pushed at someone. Rather, it's just a part of, hey, what are you all about? Hey, what am I all about? And in that common ground, significant, significant things can happen. That's where I'd encourage you men to start. I'm not saying go out and start a whole new life in some other area. I just ask, 
look at your natural interest and natural life and say, that's the field that God's put me in. Those are the people I can get to know deeper. Maybe it's gardening. Maybe you're a jogger. Maybe you're a biker. You know, maybe you play chess. You know, maybe you're a woodworker. You know, I don't know what it is that's your thing, but it's often going to be right here where the good things come. It's common ground. Down there at the the bottom, um, common ground must never compromise your message or your morals. Never compromise your message or your morals. Need to be very careful there. You stretch for people. I mean, thinking back before you came to know Jesus in a real way, did somebody stretch for you? Let me see. Anybody? Was there, well, I mean, were you kind of like a character back then in some way? Did somebody stretch for you? They were patient with you? They sowed seeds in your life? They loved you even though sometimes you weren't too lovable? Yeah, I see some heads nodding. You know, just like somebody stretched for most of you, now is your opportunity to stretch for somebody, for somebody else. Here's, uh, here, here's the way that you see God calling us to have that common ground. Here, here's what sometimes happens. Um, here's sometimes what we choose to be. Here's, uh, here's the way it worked for Jonah. Jonah. Here's Jonah. Here's the Ninevites. What's missing? There's no overlap. Jonah might have had a good message, but he had no influence at all. No influence at all because he didn't even want to be with anybody that wasn't just like him. So he had a good message, but he had zero influence. We need to be careful of that isolation mentality. Some of us are prone that way just to isolate. It's the way we're wired up. We need to be careful of that. The temptation on uh, some others' part is this. You know, uh, Lot, here's the way Lot's circle worked. Lot lived near Sodom. Then he lived in Sodom. Then Sodom lived in Lot, right? Uh, Sodom, you know, had all that connectivity, but he lost his platform and his influence because he was no different than anybody else. No problem have a, having a boat in the water, right? That's the way it's supposed to work, a boat in the water. The problem happens was that when the water gets in the boat. There's no problem having a follower of Christ be in the world. That's the way it's supposed to be, as long as the world doesn't get into the follower of Christ. That's Lot. We don't want to be like this person here who just has that, that uh, you know, they're becoming just like the world. We don't want the isolation approach. You want the integration approach. You want the impact approach. You want the common ground approach because that's where influence can take place. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, next one's uh, the intellectual barrier. And uh, this, again, results from people who have good questions. And our responsibility is good questions deserve good answers. Good questions deserve good answers. And uh, I'll pass around uh, 
the two books that are my, uh, well, they're both the same, updated one, that uh, are my favorites. There's a lot of books out on apologetics that help people learn to answer the questions. We know the questions, but better yet, we can know the answers. Uh, these folks in this ministry, search ministry, I don't know if you've heard of it, they found that by and large, uh, people who don't know Christ ask one of 12 questions, and they're listed there on your page. Uh, I found this to be the best help in practically helping me learn how to answer those good questions. Here's what people are interested in. How do you know there's a God? How do you know that book you follow is is reliable? Uh, What's this issue of suffering? What about the hypocrites? Uh, We all can learn how to very practically answer some of these questions. I'll pass these around if you want to take a little look at it. This one's kind of worn, you know, like my Bible, but uh, it's a good little tool. Larry Moody, who uh, wrote the book, he's kind of like a father figure to me. He's uh, been uh, chairman of the board of Dallas Seminary. He's been the chaplain of the PGA for 30-some years. So his job is to reach out to the pro golfers every week on the tour and run an uh, evangelism and discipleship ministry. And uh, and so good tool there. Uh, Two of these that I just want to comment on, and I'll add one topic here that is, is becoming increasingly big today, and that's the, uh, the kind of the gay question. A whole lot of people, when they have a spiritual conversation, they're asking this question of, what do you think about that area? And it all falls under this tolerance kind of theme that people have today. And uh, it needs to be negotiated very carefully, I find, or it just shuts down the conversation with people. Uh, Here's what I've been using an awful lot. It, uh, I first heard it from a friend of mine who, had a, who has a uh, gay brother. And so uh, it, was, uh, it was the brother's birthday, and, and so this friend of mine and his wife get inv- invited to the birthday party. And, and he gets to the house, and the music's loud, and there's like 75 gay men here at the birthday party at this brother's house. And so this guy comes in into the kitchen, and they shut the music down, and uh, his brother says, hey, everybody, I just want to introduce you to my, my Christian fundamentalist Bible-believing brother who's here with his wife. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the start. He was doing it in great fun, and, and uh, they each love each other. But... Uh, Here's what happened. They get some food. They go into the living room, and there's about 25 guys in the living room. And uh, one of the guys, they just all kind of turn to this Christian guy. And here's the question that gets asked. Well, what do you think of us? What do you think of us? And you got 25 eyes on this guy in 25 years, real big. And they can ask the question because they think they got this guy outnumbered, so they're not scared in asking it. But that's a really critical question, isn't it? What do you think of us? Here was my friend's answer. He said, I don't think God cares half as much about your sexual identity as he cares about you knowing 
that God has an incredible love for you and a passion to have a personal relationship with each one of you. I don't think God cares half as much about your sexual identity as he does that you know God has an incredible love for you and he passionately wants to have a personal relationship with you. And they thought about that and then they said, yeah, but do you think it's a sin? Another key point. He said, well, to be honest with you, I really do believe it's a sin. But it's really no different than my struggle with lust, misuse of my tongue, selfishness, and the jealousy that's sometimes in my life. They heard both those responses by him, and he said that kind of provided an open door so that for the next 60 minutes they had a one-hour conversation about who the person of Jesus really was. I can't tell you how many times I've used that since I heard him do that. You know, he's sharing on the one hand, this, this whole thing today, tolerance in relationships is a virtue. Tolerance in truth is a travesty. It's the grace and truth kind of side that you see in Jesus playing out over and over that I asked Jesus to burn into my life that I might be a grace-filled person, but also a person built on truth. He shared with him his heart, the heart, I believe, of God, that God wants to reach out to every single person. But he also was willing to speak truth because he needed to stand where the word of God stands. But in that, an open door came. If it would have just been, I think you're and you're going to hell, it probably wouldn't have allowed for further conversation about Jesus. But I've used that little line with a bunch of people now, and I find it, it yields a conversation. And today, there's a whole bunch of people, especially young people in the country, that unless they get a sense how much you care, and that there's a, dig, a tolerance in terms of relationship, meaning there's a love, there's a civility, there's a respect for a person as a human being, they're not going to go down a path and have a conversation. If that doesn't come across in some way, a whole lot of people are going to write you off, push you away, or shut you down. Somehow we need to be a person who conveys that in attitude, expression, or in words. But we also need to be men of God who will speak and stand where the word of God stands. We draw lines in the sand where the scripture draws lines in the sand, but then we build bridges at the very same time. I find that's a big one today because a whole lot of people ask that question. And sometimes they won't let you go any further until they hear your heart. A second one I find is this issue of uh, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Awful lot of people have had bad experience and they, they sense this question, what about the hypocrites? And uh, I find it comes up in most conversations I was with a, a group, we were going to the uh, state of North Carolina, and 180 of us chose for one week just to go out, kind of like Jesus did it, not two by two, we went out three by three. We had no appointments at all, and we were just going to reach out to the elected leaders of the state of, uh, of North Carolina, mayors and council people and the governor and others, 
no appointments. We were just going three by three to see where God opened the doors. And God just continually opened doors. But I remember in this one town talking to this guy and told him I was there. We were praying and reaching out to uh, a leaders. And he said immediately, immediately, kind of strong, I don't want to talk about religion with anybody. I don't know if you come across people like that, but I do all the time. And I said, uh, it sounds like you've had a really, really bad experience in your life. And of course, that got him going. And he tells a story. This guy was in his 40s. When I was eight years old, I got excommunicated with my mother. She was getting a divorce from our church. And his impression was, as an eight-year-old, he was excommunicated from the church and the people he loved. And for now three-plus decades, he just harbored that. I don't want to talk with religion, with anybody. And I just said to him, I don't know the whole situation, but I want to apologize. I want to apologize to you because that never should have happened to an eight-year-old, ever. Never should have happened. And I said, there's no hurt like church hurt. And I said, I've experienced some of that. And it just really, it, it really gets to you sometimes. But uh, we went on for a few minutes, and then I said to that, him these words. Would you mind if we didn't have a conversation about religion at all? But would you mind if we just had a little conversation about Jesus? His whole demeanor changed. And immediately he said, oh yeah, I wouldn't mind talking about Jesus at all. And we talked about Jesus for 30-some minutes from that point on. I tell you, this question uh, people have as a barrier, the hypocrisy issue. If people really want to talk about it, I'll tell them, wow, if you're really concerned about that, you've got to get to know better my friend Jesus. Because the person in all of world's history who most was concerned about hypocrisy was Jesus. In fact, he invented the word. In the first century, the word for hypocrite, it was the word used for the actor on the stage. You know, the theaters were all around Israel. The actor on the stage was the hypocrite. The actor on the stage, the one who played a part, the one who assumed a role. That was the word Jesus plucked out of the language of the first century, and he applied it in a different kind of way and in a negative kind of connotation meaning certain religious kind of people who wear a mask. They play a role. They assume a part. 17 times in Scripture, you see it's Jesus who's using that word hypocrite. And if you read chapter 23 of Matthew, he's saying in very strong terms, Woe to you hypocrites, you dead man's bones, you who live among the tombs. You know, it's Jesus who said to the hypocrites, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, will get to heaven easier than for you. I mean, Jesus would never have gotten invited to a Pharisee's convention, would he? Never. But I say to them, you know, you guys have business cards? You know, I'll say to someone, you got, you got a stack of business cards? What if someone broke into your home, went out, and uh, all night long, they went on a rampage. They broke into cars. They broke into sheds. They broke into businesses. They smashed windows. Every place they went all through the night, they did damage, and then they left your business card. And in the morning, the police end up at your front door, and they've got the stack of business cards, and they're saying, what were you doing last night? What's wrong with you? What would you say to the police? 
What would you say? Wasn't me. You'd say pretty strongly, it was not me. There's an awful lot that's done in Jesus' name, like his business card gets attached to it, that's nothing to do with Jesus. If you look at Jesus, you could never find any fault in him. He reached out to everybody. He cared. Often people will see that maybe it isn't Jesus I should be mad at. In fact, I'd probably like to get to know this Jesus more. But that issue of hypocrisy and bad experience with religion often needs to be dealt with. Maybe that would be of help to you. Uh, this last one here. Let's see how we're doing. Got to... Uh, the volitional barrier. Uh, this is one that uh, when it comes to having control over this and what you do, you know, you can't change a person's heart. You can't change a person's will. But somehow we do get the privilege of praying. That's what we can do. Somehow prayer is something that God uses and God works through. And so what we can do is we can pray on behalf of other people. I think about a, a, a guy, uh, he worked in uh, Crystal City, Virginia uh, for the uh, cruise missile project. And I kind of went in a lunch hour and reached out to a bunch of these folks and just looked at these 12 questions with uh, all kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. A guy named Pat, I started meeting with him one-on-one -on -one, and it got to the point where he had studied the scripture with me and he could communicate the gospel as clearly as I could. You know, he could just spell it out. This is what the gospel is. And he knew exactly what it was. And I just asked Pat, you know, why can't you cross the line? And here's what Pat would say to me. I understand it. I know it up here. I guess it's just a matter of my will. And yeah, he was in a place where he just needed to choose. But what I could do was enter in and I could pray for Pat. Uh, here's kind of a framework here. Uh, I hope this has been helpful. I hope you'll have a good uh, discussion uh, in your breakout groups. You know, I love to play basketball, and uh, the young guys let me play with them, and it kind of keeps my sanity. But my favorite basketball story is uh, the night uh, Michael Jordan scored 69 points. And uh, that night was incredible, and people still talk about it, but uh, with a minute to go in the game, they put in a little-known scrub just to kind of finish out, give the ovation for Michael Jordan, put the rookie in, and uh, his name was Stacy King. And uh, in the last seconds of the game, he scored two points, and the game was over, and it was a great victory for the Bulls. And the locker room was packed with reporters huddled around Jordan, you know, they wanted to get the story. And it, there were so many reporters that one of the reporters walked over to this rookie, Stacy King, and just said uh, he'd never had a conversation with this rookie before. And uh, he just happened to ask this rookie, uh, well, I don't really know you well. What's been the highlight of your NBA career? And Stacy King said, without batting an eye, the highlight of my career was tonight, the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 71 points to have a great victory. <laughs> Man. <laughs> this is what, what I want you, to the depths of your being, to come out of this retreat believing. You and I get to partner with Jesus.
and the God of the universe in his work. It's not my work, it's his work. We get to partner with him every single day. And I mean, we can't take credit for all the stuff that he does. But for some reason, he loves for us to just come along with him and we partner with him in the greatest enterprise this world has ever known, the work of the kingdom of God. And if you could just get the sense where you could say, kind of like Stacy King does, you know, I get to partner with Jesus in his work, and I want to have my eyes wide open, and I want to be available for that. Even if it's just sowing a seed or loving a next-door neighbor or caring for a coworker or reaching out to my prodigal grandson, that you just say, that's who I am, and I get to do that. And I've learned... Before I get out of bed in the morning, most mornings, I've learned to say these words. Jesus, you're going to be very busy today. Would it be okay if I come along with you? Just my little uh, discipline I've built into my life now. Because I used to be a person who all the time would plan and have big dreams. And here's the way I'd do it for too many years. Don't make my mistake. There was a good part of me, but then there was a part of me that was too much about me. And I'd kind of say, here's God, here's here's my plan. Oh God, here's my plan. And oh God, would you bless my plan? And it's not wrong to plan, guys. But God, would, would you bless what I'm doing? I needed to go through Katrina to have my eyes open and being broken. That I need to be sensing more where God's at work. And I need to jump into the middle of what he's doing. It's given me an adventure each day that's different. And sometimes you don't see anything happening for a week or a month. And it's kind of like, God, are you doing something? But he's doing something. I pray you'd have that Stacy King kind of attitude. God, I get to do stuff with you. I can't wait to see what you got ahead. All right, we need to go to those groups. Thanks, everybody.